Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of What the Politics. Today, our topic is going to be exploring the United States relationship with China. But first, before we get into the meat of the topic, we're going to go ahead and ask our guest to please introduce himself. Thank you. My name is Robert Ross. I am a professor of political science at Boston College an associate of the John King Fairbanks Center for East Asian Studies at Harvard University. Well, thank you for, oh, sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, well, thank you for joining us. Um, I, as you can tell, I'm just so excited to get right into our topic. Um, our My first question is gonna be, there seems to be this adversarial relationship with China that the average US citizen kind of has in their mind about um, how we should view China. Where did that start, would you say? Well, we try and understand this relationship as a political relationship. And it's fair to say that the two most powerful countries in the world are never going to be friends, never going to be allies. When they have all those capabilities, the other is going to worry, what are they going to use them for? And so that relationship becomes more and more difficult as the as China approaches American capabilities, the rising China, as the gap between China and the United States begins to close, the United States gets quite worried. What are they going to do with those capabilities? At the same time, the Chinese are saying, you know, when you created the East Asian order after World War II, we were weak, we were backward, we weren't at the table. And you created an order where your bases, your air bases, your naval bases, they surround us. And we don't really like that. So China looks up and says, now we've got more capabilities, more power. We don't like your alliances and we're going to work hard to weaken your presence. And so that's a normal expectation. We might expect them to do that because they don't like being encircled by American alliances and bases. But the United States for its part says, wait, that's been our alliance system for the last 70 years. We like that system. And so we have a fundamental conflict that's really hard to resolve because the Chinese want more security and we don't want to give up our security. And so as that relationship gets more difficult, the United States is more adversarial with China because we want to say, stop, stop. And China says, no, you know, we're building up our capabilities. We're getting more security. You can't push us around anymore. And then the United States gets a little more insistent. You need to stop. And the relationship becomes more adversarial. Sure. And I guess kind of sticking with the theme of, of how the world views East Asia countries and China more specifically, you know, in my mind, I look at it as, you know, a lot of a lot of people in the Western countries look at them as these huge tech giants, these advanced technological countries. So how, you know, kind of accurate is that or how how advanced are they, you know, compared to these Western countries in reality? Well, the United States remains the most technologically advanced country in the world. And that remains our strength in dealing with China and dealing with other countries. But China is catching up, whether it's in artificial intelligence, supercomputing, digital communications, and a wide range of high-tech areas is closing the gap rapidly. 
So the United States' ability to maintain that advantage is dwindling. But of course, South Korea is also a technologically advanced country and wants to play a larger role in the world. Japan, we all know about Japan in the past decades and how it caught up the United States. It's not quite where it was before, but it remains a technologically advanced country. So East Asia is important for those reasons, but it's also important because um, China is the second most powerful country in the world. It's in East Asia. American allies are in East Asia. It, trade with East Asia. And of course, Americans, when we think about East Asia, frequently we'll think about it as no different than Europe. It's right across the ocean. So if you're California, you don't look at Paris or London, you look at Tokyo or Beijing. And so that makes that region equally important as for all those other reasons. And so the United States cares a lot about what happens in East Asia. And of course, for China, well, that's their backyard. So they care as well. Mm -hmm. When it when it comes to China's political philosophy, I, I understand that the communist power is um, pretty much the the ruling power or the ruling po political philosophy in China. Um, should that be a concern for the United States? And what exactly would you say the communist party's power in China that their ultimate goal is, or or a few of their goals that they're trying to accomplish? Well. Um... One thing we need to understand is that the country is ruled by the Communist Party of China, but China is no longer communist, which is a bit of an irony, because after Mao Zedong died, who was a real communist and a great ideologue he was, the next leader said, and his most famous saying was, it doesn't matter whether a cat is black or white, as long as it catches mice. And so pragmatism became the order of the day. And they looked around the world and they said, what countries are successful and what are they doing? They're doing capitalism. So they quickly introduced capitalism to China. And much of the success we see today is because of that reform and in the introduction of Western style economics into China. Now they call themselves communists. So the rest of the world is going to say you're communists. But in the same way, the North Korea calls themselves democratic. Well, we don't really believe them, do we? So and we shouldn't be simply because they call themselves communists, think of them as an ideologically driven Marxist country. They are far more pragmatic. And then you ask, what do they want? Well, the number one, they were a single party authoritarian state, like every other single party authoritarian state in the world. And what they want is to stay in power. There is no more critical objective for the Chinese Communist Party, but to maintain their power. Now, do the citizens sort of see that that political power the same as the government leaders might or as they speak about to other countries? You know, you said that they they don't consider themselves a communist country. But do the citizens share that same sentiment or is it kind of uh, a breach a little bit? Well, the citizens are as cynical as anyone and they know there's no communism left on, in China. They know the Chinese Communist Party doesn't work for the workers anymore. Um, and they understand that corruption is rampant and what their objective is, staying in power. So the Chinese people simply evaluate this government on how well they're doing. Is the economy going up? Is my standard of living doing better? Is China taking a greater role in world affairs? And if the Chinese Communist Party is performing well, then they have the support of their people. And so the party gets nervous when the economy is going down or unemployment is rising or pollution is undermining the fishing of the Chinese people, well, then the party gets nervous because then they're losing that support they have. 
Definitely. And so I, I want to talk about um, I, I, well, I want to talk about Jack Ma, and Jack Ma is like the founder of Alibaba. Um, and there's been, I mean, he he. I don't know if he was openly critical of the Communist Party, but I understand that there was a tense relationship with him, his power, because he he you know ran Alibaba or was a founder co-founder of Alibaba, and he started becoming you know a major financial figure in in um, in China. Yeah, in the really yeah the world. Um, so, what would you have to say about? rising Chinese celebrities, rising mm-hmm. Chinese businessmen, um, and their relationship with uh, the Communist Party in China? Well, we say the party likes wants to maintain its power. Mm-hmm. Another characteristic of the party is control. They want to control the internet. They want to control the media, including news. No protests or demonstrations allowed. And they want to control the economy. And you have these very powerful, large businesses that are independent private sector businesses. And it made them nervous. We can't control these businesses. So they begin to rein them in. And so they become more compliant and easier to manage. And if they can control the businesses, well, then they can control the economy. And that gives them confidence. And so Jack Ma, you're right, was one of the most powerful businesses and businessmen in the world. And they started to regulate them. Say, well, maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe you shouldn't do that. And he pushed back. And that was a bit of a mistake. But we're seeing that across the entire economy. Major business leaders are being told, you work for the party, we control your businesses, and we're going to start regulating. Mm -hmm. And what also that's for is that we should understand that these were indeed capitalist businesses, and they were unregulated. There was a bit of a wild west in China. Despite what we think of the Communist Party, this was a wild west environment where businesses had no regulations, they could amass fortune with no attention to people's privacy or numbers or, or cell phone data. So that too was required. Time to start regulating this economy. And so that's part of what's going on here. And third, there is massive inequality in China. The rich are super rich and they've been allowed to get super rich because once you get super rich, others will follow. And now the party's saying, if we wanna stay in power, we better start appealing to other people as well in China who, who see this great inequality and are becoming resentful. And so they are pushing back on these billionaires saying, you need to restrain yourselves. And we're gonna have policies now that enable your companies to pay more in taxes, pay more in contributions to the poor and to social welfare, so we can begin to close that gap in inequality. And so for all these reasons, movie stars as well, media stars are being constrained from overtly flouting their wealth and their superstar status because the party believes that that gap of superstars and the regular people is detrimental to the party. Now, for the everyday person, how how much are they regulated, you know, as compared to a celebrity or some of these extremely, extremely wealthy businessmen? You know, what does their everyday look like when it comes to censorship and surveillance? Well, there's an old saying in China, I don't, I don't pay attention to politics and politics doesn't pay attention to me. And that's about where the Chinese people are. Don't talk about the Chinese Communist Party. Don't criticize the Chinese Communist Party. Don't get involved in economics. 
Every so often, uh, sorry, in politics, every so often you may need to bribe an official to get your work done, but otherwise you're pretty much free. You dress how you want, makeup as you want, television as you want, dining out as you want, um, anything you pretty much want, but don't touch politics. Now this is getting a little more severe because the government is clamping down on what they call unhealthy practices, um, reality TV shows, um, dancing with the stars kind of show. And of course the people really enjoyed that. Right? So the people too are experiencing restraints on their leisure time. And they're quite aware that the internet is controlled. So there's controls on that. So they're constantly aware the government is there, but they're also constantly aware, don't get involved in politics. <laughs> Um, when it comes to, uh, I remember when I was in middle school that there was something, uh, maybe high school, there was something called, maybe college, I don't know. <laughs> I can't remember, but um, the Umbrella Revolution and also a few protests going on in Hong Kong, um, I think more recently, are that has um, obviously created some tension with the Communist Party and it kind of goes against what, what you just said, uh, where people are, are openly protesting some of the um, some of some of the practices by the Communist Party. Um, but those get seem to get shut down pretty quick. Um, what what happens to to the people who openly protest or, or, or there because there is dangers in openly protesting in China for against the Communist Party. Um, yeah, what happens with those protests and-, and, and well, The current leader of China, Xi Jinping, rules with an iron hand. Mm -hmm. Nobody challenges him. His predecessor was somewhat weaker, somewhat um, less determined. And so he had protests all around China, maybe a hundred thousand a year. Oh, wow. Yes. And this person came in and said, no more protests. The party controls politics. And all of a sudden, the protests started to stop. We don't hear much about them anymore because fear is a wonderful motivator. And the Chinese Communist Party up and down the country has been told thou shalt not allow demonstrations. So once these demonstrations began five years, six, seven years ago under our new leader, they were quickly rounded up and told, at best, don't you do this again. And at worst, they spent some time in jail. So we no longer have protests in China. We used to have protests against Japan. They're not there anymore. Hong Kong is part of that process. You had a democracy in Hong Kong for many, many years, since 1997, perhaps. Well, Chinese Communist Party saw that as a challenge to their own authoritarian rule inside China. And they said, we own Hong Kong. They do as we say. So they started imposing on Hong Kong leaders that were subservient to Beijing. And these leaders began arresting anyone who challenged Chinese rule, anyone who demanded democracy. And so we began to see that kind of authoritarianism in Hong Kong as well. And it's become dangerous in Hong Kong to protest against mainland China or against the Hong Kong government. And so we've talked about kind of how the, the citizens view their own role in society, but how do they view Western countries or Western society as a whole? Do you know, are they, do they think that we're a little too lax? Do they think that, that they, that their society is kind of the, the epitome of, 
I guess, a, a working class society compared to the Western world? How do they view, how do they view us, I guess? Well, they're quite proud of their own country, many of them are today, because China is now a great power, taking its place alongside America, challenging America, expanding its influence. And so now in the past, they'd look at China as number one, and they would look up to the United States. Well, now they're not so readily likely to look up to the United States because, well, China's number one too. And so they're quite proud of that. And when the United States tries to coerce China with trade wars or tech wars, they say, stop it, you know, show some respect. And then when we go through our domestic trials of, of Congress trying to deal with the debt cap, it take great pleasure in watching the chaos in our political system. They take pleasure. They think the Chinese did a very good job in economic growth, which they did. And they think their government did a very good job in handling COVID. So perhaps there was two or three weeks there where their government clamped down and kept it secret. But since then, they feel the Chinese government has done a much better job in the United States in constraining the disease and preventing deaths, preventing infections. And, you know, in that respect, they might be right. So, yeah, there's definitely going to be a lot of um, uh, lessons learned from the way that this pandemic has affected yes. each country. Uh, I do want to get into the U.S. Uh, foreign policy relationship with China. I want to go straight into one of the biggest, the bigger ticket items, which are the trade wars going on. Um, let's talk about, you know, the bargaining chips, the powers that yeah. each side has, the United States and China. Um, and then we'll get kind of more into into a little bit of the uh, gray areas when it comes to that relationship. Well, as we, as we talked about, um, the rise of China makes the United States nervous. And it's growing at a sufficient rate and closing the gap with the United States very quickly. But the United States is looking for ways to slow China down. That is to be expected. Slow it down in using the American economy to grow the Chinese economy and to slow it down in technology growth so that Americans don't export high technology to China. Kind of predictable what a country like the United States might do. But we've also have a sense that we still have considerable power to compel China to do things it might not otherwise want to do. So the trade war. And we think, well, we can use the trade war to compel China to change its economic system to have a, a more fair trading relationship with the United States. The problem is, is that the trade wars hurt the United States more than China in terms of relative capabilities. China has grown faster during the trade war than the United States. China's trade has grown fast. The trade deficit in the United States has grown during the trade war. So you would hope that someone in the US government would run the numbers, work the issue. If we do a trade war, will China grow faster or grow slower? Will it contribute to the rise of China or slow it down? And of course, everything is relative. So we care about compared to the United States. Compared to the United States, the trade wars help China grow relative to America and catch up to America. So that's a problem. Many people ask, why are we doing this? And under prior president, we just figured he was acting out of a knee-jerk reaction because he was angry, so we threw on tariffs. This president seems to think that if I do it better, I can get better results. And it's not working. The Chinese have not become more compliant. They've been just as resistant. It's hurting the United States. And I think to a large extent, it's difficult to acknowledge that maybe you made a mistake. 
Because if you say this trade war was wrong and you begin to walk it back, then the whole world is watching. And you're watching America saying, we weren't strong enough to use a trade war to compel China. And that's not a signal the Biden administration wants to send to the world. So having made a mistake, it's hard to walk it back. The result, however, is that it's more detrimental to us than to China. And we hope we find a way to restore American trade. Every chamber of commerce in America says, please, this trade war is killing us. Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, please, the trade war is killing us. But the Biden administration hasn't found a way to walk it back. And and I'm correct in saying that, that China is one of the largest foreign creditors for the United States, correct? So what is what is that that amount to? <laughs> in terms of oh. we could yeah, yeah in terms we of could like put a, a number on that. Well, not not a number, but more kind of like what what does that mean for the United mm-hmm. States and and could that weaken us? Yeah. Does that give them more power in the long mm-hmm. run? Which is trade currency, and the value of currency affects your economy. Mm-hmm. So China holds a lot of American treasury bills, a lot of American dollars, and if they start selling those dollars on the market use economics, the supply will grow and the demand is constant, which means the value of the dollar will plummet and get weaker and weaker because the supply of the dollar keeps growing. And if the value of the dollar declines on the global market, then when America goes to buy things, it's a little less expensive. But when we go to sell things, it's a little less expensive. Oh, sorry, I got backwards. When we go to buy things, it's less expensive, but you get massive inflation in the United States. It can undermine the American economy. So China has the ability to create inflation and hurt the economy. On the other hand, China holds all these dollars. If they sell them, well, then they're worth a lot less because of the declining value of the dollar in the international market. So they're not so quick to just sell all their dollars and hurt the United States because it would hurt the value of their own currency in their reserves. Now, over the last year or two, we've seen the Chinese begin to reduce the amount of dollars they hold. They're doing it slowly. They don't want to hurt themselves, but they're getting a little, say, why should we help the United States and buy American debt? So we see them moving out of the dollar and into other currencies. Long term, if it's slow, we probably won't notice. But we do see the Chinese less likely to help us in the future by buying our debt. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to, um, I'm I'm gonna kind of go a little bit more into the into the trade wars. There was there was kind of a uh, something that didn't seem to get as much attention, probably because uh, w- the United States doesn't understand, you know, like all the all the um, or doesn't have interest in in the um, companies that help China become one of the biggest uh, powers in the world, if that makes sense, in terms of financial capabilities. Um, Do you have any comments on the Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation? Um, I know that kind of seems like thrown out of left field, but the reason I'm bringing that up is because it's one of the largest chip makers, but the relationship between that particular company and the United States and China seems to be um, very complicated, but mm-hmm. also pressing in terms of the the relationship between China and the United States. So there are two parts of our economic 
wars with China. One is the trade war, the other is the tech war. And the tech war clearly involves uh, microprocessing chips, absolutely. And the United States is saying two things. One, we don't want to be dependent on China for computer chips because our economy relies on them. And if you're dependent on China, that gives us leverage over them. And so we have started to make it difficult for China to manufacture and use American technologies to make their chips and then sell them to us. We want to make our own chips more and buy from ourselves or our allies. And so we are making it difficult for China to trade in technology with the United States. Second, we don't want to um, sell the technology to China that enables them to make advanced chips or advanced technologies. So we have restrictions on Chinese buying American companies that are high tech. We have restrictions on Americans investing in Chinese companies that are high tech. Because all this amounts to technology transfer. We don't want to transfer a high technology to China. Now, it's much like the trade relationship, however. You have to do it carefully. There clearly are certain technologies that are high technology military applications that we do not want to help China develop. On the other hand, there are other communications and technologies that are harmless. Why shouldn't Americans be able to use TikTok? Why can't they use WeChat? So that you want to have a surgical ability to say, these are technologies we don't want to share with China, and these are harmless. Otherwise, you have an escalating trade war that's detrimental to both sides. Second, we are concerned about Chinese participation in American university laboratories and engineering, and they could learn high technology to bring them back to China. Now, again, you have to be careful. There may be certain technologies in the greatest laboratories that we don't want China to be researched. On the other hand, the United States benefits immensely from educational exchanges with China and Chinese coming to America, getting PhDs and staying in American work. So again, you want to be careful. You just don't want to say no tech transfer because that could hurt us more than China, just like we trade. And we haven't, to be honest, done a very good job on that. The government has had a wide ranging cross a blanket approach to trade and technology which is unnecessary and even detrimental. Sure. And I have one last question for you, Victoria. I'm not sure how many you have left. One. Mm-hmm. Okay. If yours is still uh, kind of going along the topic of trade wars, if you want to ask yours, mine kind of goes a little off topic. Mine doesn't talk about trade wars. Okay. Yeah. So my last question for you <laughs> is I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily talk about what's going on in China when it comes to certain ethnic groups. Um, I know there's been kind of a lot of... of negative commentary about that that isn't being talked about in the Western world and why isn't it being talked about? So could we discuss a little bit about what is happening specifically with Muslim ethnic groups in China and why maybe it isn't being talked about on a worldwide scale? So um, we do have um, the Uyghurs in Northwest China who are in a Muslim group and they've carried out a handful of terrorist acts over the years. Um, And the Chinese government, as we said, wants to control things to an extreme. And their people are very nervous about terrorism. And efforts at assimilation didn't seem to work. So the Chinese have gone all the way to the extreme and have had detaining millions of Uyghurs for basically we would call re-education 
to wipe away their identity as Islam and try and impose the identity of Chinese. Um, this is one of the worst human rights catastrophes in the world today. Would it be, I mean, comparable to the Holocaust and concentration camps? That's what I've heard from, you know, certain people and, um, and the extremity of it. Well, this is what we, you know, if you're in academia, you tend to work in nuance and subtlety. Yeah. Um, so when we say the genocide in the Holocaust, we say wiping out a race by killing. The American government uses the word genocide against China for the Uyghurs. When both technically and legally it's not genocide, they are not killing anyone. They're detaining people for a year or two and then letting them go. This is not to minimize the human rights catastrophe this is, but this is not ethnic genocide, however bad it might be. But that's... Um, the world paid attention to it for a while. And then it moved on. But many countries, the United States put sanctions on China, on these issues. Understand our sanctions tend to be rather ineffectual because we put sanctions on the leaders in the China or the companies in China that do business in, in that part of China, Northwest China. And those leaders we put sanctions on, we say, you can't come to the United States. Well, they probably wouldn't want to come anyway. Uh, but we're doing something. Right? Uh, most countries aren't doing much of anything. And one of the great puzzles, why aren't the Arab countries doing anything? And I think there are probably two reasons. One, they have major economic relationship with China and they're not Saudis, they're not Iranians, they're not Kuwaitis, they live in China. So their commitment to them is less than it would be to their own people, you know, and they're far away. So they can prioritize their economic relationship with China over standing up ineffectually, we will say, for the Muslims in China. And we will say ineffectual, because nothing the world can do can change Chinese domestic politics. You know, we tried to change Vietnamese politics, we failed by war, right? Countries go to war to change other countries' policies and they fail. Nothing the United States can do can change Chinese policy. So they're saying more, a bit more pragmatic or, or cynical, why should we jeopardize our economic relationship with China when there's nothing we can do and they're far away? The second issue is, understand these countries don't like terrorism either. They're like China. They're a single party authoritarian state, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's Kuwait, whether it's any of these countries, and they don't want countries that having, they don't want Muslims having terrorism in their country. So there's a bit of affinity of Chinese willingness to control terrorism and clamp down on resistance groups. Um, we know that whether it's Yemen or Somalia or, or Saudi Arabia, the divisions within the Muslim world are such that all countries are fear of terrorism by one Muslim group against another. And so they, as authoritarian governments like China, they understand where China's coming from. Mm -hmm. And this will be my last question from you. And it's, and it's looking at our relationship with China from the United States point of view for our, our lawmakers. What, what is one piece of advice or one thing that you would tell lawmakers to keep in mind that would be like the step in the right direction or or um, even just to have like this piece of knowledge in the back of your mind when you're making any sort of um, uh, policies regarding China or any sort of future policies regarding the relationship with Chinese lawmakers? What is something that can kind of... I think there are two things. Okay. 
that all Americans need to think about, including lawmakers, when they, when they think about what we should do about rising China. One, the United States is no longer the only great power in the world. We no longer have the ability to push China in the direction we want it to go. And that China will push back. And then related to that is number two, it's an old expression, but it's true. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Think about the costs when you do something. Just don't think we need to coerce China. How will China push back? How will it retaliate? Do the cost-benefit analysis. Work the policy. Understand we're no longer number one. We just can't act with impunity anywhere we want. And then two, particularly with China, what are the costs when you do this? And is it worth the cost? So you want to move closer to Taiwan. All right, that's fine. But if it creates a crisis in the Taiwan Strait, is it worth it? Okay, you want to put trade tariffs on China. That's good. But what are the costs? Is it worth it? Every policy has a cost. Try and work the policy. Now you ask about Congress. The problem with Congress is that they have the ability to throw a monkey wrench into things. But then they have no responsibility for what goes wrong because people will blame the president. And that's just the way our country works. So we have all kinds of senators and members of Congress and representatives who are going to posture and vote and do this and do that. And it may make the U.S.-China relationship worse, but that's on the president's desk, not my problem. This will help me get reelected at home. And that's just the way our democracy works, and it can be difficult to manage. Definitely. Well, I think that was all the questions we had for you. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to sit down and, and talk with us about this topic and, and provide such expertise and details into this. We really appreciate it. And that is going to thank you so much. And that is going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics, you guys. You can always find new episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your podcast. Of course, we're doing a new video component, so you guys can check that out at WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT podcast network. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you guys next time.